inside the epic battle for media's future, and how Amazon's new convenience store changes everything. This is episode 78 of Media Unplugged, the podcast that goes behind the spin to reveal what's really happening in media. Media Unplugged with Tom Asacker and Mark Ramsey. Welcome to Media Unplugged. I'm Mark Ramsey. And I'm Tom Asacker. Tom, as you can hear, I've got a little cold today, so please bear with me. Uh, do I have a choice? <laughs> Fortunately, we're not doing an audio show, so it won't have any bearing on the quality of our uh, material <laughs> exactly. at all. Exactly. Inside the epic battle for media's futures, this is from a piece from Needham that we found in, uh, in our, uh, from our friends at, uh, at uh, what's it called, Media, what is that called? Village. Media Village, thank you. Yes, we're only like featured <laughs> on there. It's, it's not important for me to remember it at all. Sorry, Media Village. Uh, Laura Martin's the author of this thing. Laura is a crazy woman. I've met her, I know her. She is super smart. If you sit in front of her for, in front of her for any period of time, you will be overwhelmed, intimidated, maybe a little bit terrified, but you will certainly come away uh, smarter for it because she's really, really uh, a smart woman. So this is her summary. And as you commented to me before we started, gosh, it's long. It's an epic article. So, <laughs> it is an epic article. Um, I think this is what she gets paid for, actually, so it's all for the best. All right. But um, I want to touch on some, a few things here. She's basically framing the, the, literally the scope of the battle of the future of media. And she begins by kind of categorizing the players. She talks about who the champs are now, for example. She says, from an over-the-air U.S. Uh, TV industry generating less than $10 billion in revenue in 1980, the TV ecosystem, um, U.S. TV ecosystem spent the next 35 years together building one of the most successful U.S. consumer products of all time, the Linear TV Bundle. At its peak reach in 2010, 88% of U.S. households paid a subscription fee for the TV ecosystem for access to 250-plus pay TV channels. Although mega-bundle pay TV subscribers are now declining, which we know, revenue has continued to rise, which I think is an interesting point, mm -hmm. reaching about $170 billion in 2017. Those are the current champs. She, she, she separates the uh, players by category, beginning with Internet aggregators, she talks about Internet aggregators. These would be Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google. Um, these are the people who are going to spend big money on uh, premium video content, 3 to $6 billion in 2018. She says, we believe this will be TV series-type content based on, among other things, the fact that Facebook has found that audiences would rather watch multi-episode video shows than one-off videos um, as uh, as. Facebook series have twice the average viewing time of non-serialized videos, according to Facebook. I found that fascinating. I didn't know that statistic. Did you? No, it's not hard to understand. But, but that, again, that's on Facebook. It's context-dependent. That doesn't mean that people prefer series over one-off movies. Well, it, it's on Facebook. It's context-dependent on Facebook. But I think you would agree that on television, unless we're talking about you know, a sporting event or an award show or something, people likewise prefer series, right? Well, they moved in that direction. I don't know I don't know if anybody has actually run the numbers on whether people are watching more movies or more series. Well, given the fact that there are almost no movies available... But, yeah, that could have something to do with it. <laughs> on most of the cable channels, that, that I think creates some data right there. <laughs> and the fact that even HBO today, once called Home Box Office, is famous not for its movies. 
Um, also, she points out that three Mashable series have an average, and this would be Mashable, which again, a different context, have an average watch time three times longer than non-serialized videos, according to Mashable. So it's, it's, it's interesting that that kind of serial content, which naturally tends toward traditional television style content. And of course, as you well know, it's similar to what we see in the podcast space. Yeah, exactly. Where, you know, a series of things is more compelling than a one-off. And the longer the series, generally, the better. So her internet aggregators are interesting because not included in that list I read you, Apple, Amazon, Facebook, Google, is a little thing called Netflix. And she comments on that. And this is interesting because this report, as we talked about, she's really down on Netflix. And I think we should talk about that. We do not include Netflix as an internet aggregator in this report. Why not? Because the internet aggregators organize long-tail assets, suggesting a power asymmetry with the platform having monopoly power compared to what it aggregates. In contrast, Netflix was built on contracts with the six major U.S. studios, each of which is taking its content away from Netflix to build their own over-the-top channels that will directly compete with Netflix. So... Why is Netflix doing more originals? Well, in part because they know that the value of the content that they're licensing is rising, rising. At a certain point, they need to create their own content to compete against that other content. Meanwhile, the owners of that other content say, hey, we can play this game too. Boom, you have CBS All Access, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So it's an interesting way that she separates those two things because um, um, it's just an interesting distinction. The champs, she refers to as incumbent U.S. TV ecosystem companies, and we could talk about whether you agree with this, this perception or not. She said they have several important competitive advantages in the fight for video economics. Engagement, enormous time spent daily with linear TV content, absolutely true. Dual revenue stream business model. We know this too, right? Mm -hmm. You've got models, or you've got subscription revenue from cable operators, and you've got ad revenue. Cluster theory, which I thought was interesting, suggesting that because of the power centers in Hollywood for entertainment and Silicon Valley for technology, um, everything's going to gravitate towards those power centers. TV everywhere, adding value to the perceived price-value relationship of the mega bundle. In other words, if you have the great content, you have the capacity to spread it in more places and derive more revenue as, as a result without creating fresh content for those places. Mega bundle value. The high monthly price of skinny bundles and individual over-the-top channels for very limited programming and or access underscores the value of the 250-plus channel mega bundle. In other words, the more you have to pay for these one-off you know, cable channelettes, the more it's valuable to you to get it all in one big bundle. Confusion. The, just the idea that there's so many of these things. Right. You know, where is the Handmaid's Tale? Gosh, I don't even know. Where is it? I do know, but I'm just saying. Right. And then add... Ad growth. And this one I found to be actually most interesting, Tom, and then I'm going to pause um, and let you talk. <laughs> U.S. TV advertising is expected to grow, adding about a billion dollars in each of the next five years. U.S. TV advertising and reaching nearly 80 billion by 2020. As ad blockers threaten the ad-driven Internet sites, TV is a sure way for brands to reach audiences with their brand message via full screen sight, sound and motion and no fraud thanks to independent party measurement by Nielsen or Comscore. Hmm. I'm going to pause, Tom. Yeah. Well, What do you think? <laughs> there were things that felt right to me in there, and there were some things mm -hmm. that just didn't square with how I view this epic battle 
playing out mm-hmm. for media's future. Um, first of all, I would say that, let's boil it all down, the battle is for attention. That's the battle. And I'm not so sure that the competitive barriers that she mentions that are possessed by Facebook and Apple and Amazon and Google, I don't think they're as impenetrable as she and her co-writer happen to think. Because to me, when I think about this, I start thinking about the pipes to the house and the interface to the content. And to me, those are the keys to maintaining, you know, growing and monetizing that attention. Like for example, I just, I'm going to wing hypothetical things at you for a second. What happens when smart TV manufacturers start implementing streaming capability into the TVs? Okay, that's, so that, that changes what people can now stick in your face when you flip that TV on. What do you on. mean? They're, they're doing that now, though, right? Yeah, they're doing it now. All right, a lot of them are integrating some of the Roku products. But let, let, let me give you this one. I'll stretch it. What happens when Verizon gives you a smart TV mm-hmm. for signing up to their streaming files service? Because right now okay. what they're giving you is a free year of Netflix if you sign up. Mm-hmm. Right? So for the same amount of money, they say, sign up for Verizon Fios. We're going to give you this beautiful smart TV. And let's say that they're working on their own little platform within that TV. Now, mm-hmm. who has the eyeballs? Mm-hmm. Right? And what prevents Verizon from teaming up with somebody and creating content for those eyeballs? This, this battle is just beginning. It's, I get that this battle is just beginning, and I get your point. Um, I think the only thing I would say about that scenario is that's a, that's a really late scenario. You know, that's a, that's a really late play in a game that's mostly won by other players, um, at least. And I, I know it's a moving target. I know it keeps rolling. But still, this is the problem, isn't it, that, that uh, Apple has? that it's doubling down thanks to the Sony hires. It's doubling down now on content. We've seen in the past couple of weeks a slate of, you know, new shows going to uh, 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 being given orders uh, for Apple. Um, But they're going, they're coming from zero and trying to get to someplace. And what you just described with Verizon is interesting, but I mean, they're coming from less than zero. Yeah, they've got the, they've got the audience, but they got no content. Where's their content? Yeah, but see, this is what I'm telling you. There's content all over the place. Where's the barrier to entry on content? This is this is the thing. You're like, look, you you can say, <laughs> you can say, look, I've got all of this, all of these products in my store. Great, that's great. How do you make sure people keep coming back to your store instead of jumping around somewhere else to the next new shiny thing? You know, you said it. You mm-hmm. said, oh, the Handmaiden's Tale. Boom. Next new shiny thing. And you know a lot mm-hmm. of people jumped over there and got it. So, yeah, a lot of these, you know, Facebook and Google and, th- yeah, they've got your attention on the phone. But content is mm-hmm. a click away. Content is a click away. Maybe that's why Apple, you have to have, you know, the Apple TV, the platform, or you can't get the content. I don't know. Well, I think that's where it gets to what, 
uh, Laura called the cluster strategy, and you know you're dealing with the Hollywood community largely there, and you're talking about a situation where, okay, some content may be a click away, but not necessarily great content, or the content by, by great, I mean the content you most want to see. I mean, there's a reason why when you look at the people that uh, Apple is signing up, uh, you're seeing a name like, you know, Reese Witherspoon rather than Mark and Tom. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we could create, listen, right now, let me put out the offer. Apple, you want content? Mark and Tom are here, <laughs> right? We'll create some content for you. But I don't think I can necessarily argue authentically that we can do better um, than Reese Witherspoon. Oh, no, no, no. And I, yeah, no, you're right. I mean, they even go on to, to mention it, you know, near, near the end where they say that, uh, and, this is, and this is kind of the highlights that, that phrase that people use when they say culture eats strategy for lunch, right? Because they write that they believe that what makes a great creative culture is very difficult to replicate, and it has little to do with money. Anyone in Hollywood mm -hmm. will take your money, and they each believe they have the next Forrest Gump or Pretty Woman or Wedding Crashes. However, mm -hmm. one out of every 10 TV series or films is a hit, and most right. of the others are written off. Not only that, but it, you know, as I know from personal experience, a lot of stuff gets shopped that may, well, uh, let me not jinx it, but may or may not uh, reach a TV screen near you. And that's the stuff that gets shopped, right? right? So there's a lot of stuff that doesn't even get that far. I mean, it's like I, I had a conversation with somebody and they said, well, you know, if you look, people are coming to me and they say, because this is someone who has relations over at Netflix, and he said, um, what does it take to get a show to sell a show to Netflix since they seem to be buying everything under the sun? And he said, for one thing, it takes the actual show, <laughs> not an idea for a show, not a thought about a show, not a concept for a show, not a treatment for a show. It takes the show. Right. And this is what separates the men from the boys. And while it's really easy to create a podcast with a couple of microphones and audacity, it's really hard to create a quality television show. Um, so I, I, and then even there, because one out of 10 are successful, it's just going to favor towards the people with the track records and the resources. All of this is going to go towards the installed, the, you know, kind of the institution uh, of uh, the, the uh, television institution that is what Laura says um, is likely to be the winner in the long well, run. And I don't know that I disagree well, with her. But she's also likely. saying that she thinks that these, you know, these uh, Internet aggregators will end up eventually buying the movie studios. It, she did say and that. And running them independently. So that's, here's what she said. that's interesting. Here's, yeah, here's what she said. In the end, we believe it is likely that at least one of the internet aggregators will be successful at generating consumer adoption of a new form of video content that centers around their unique platform strengths. And by the way, in general, those unique platform strengths are not television. Right. However, she says, we think it is unlikely any internet ag aggregator will be able to create a culture that directly displaces the best and brightest. And then she goes on to say, we believe they will buy the studios and run them independently with a handful of executives translating Hollywood jargon into Silicon Valley speak, et cetera, et cetera. So this is your point. Uh, and uh, and I, I think that is the most legitimate thing of all. When we an analyze these, we could talk about Verizon. You know, so Oath owns, what, Verizon and Yahoo? No, no, but you're right. Look, 
it having and, and you know this because Othone's Othone's uh, um, <laughs> AOL and Yahoo. Sorry, right? But I get your point, and and it's and it's something that people can't really see unless you've spent a lot of time working with a lot of these big companies over the years, like you have and I have, and you know having pointed out the obvious to these people over and over again, I know that it's the ability to move an organization quickly into the future. That is the most powerful competitive weapon there is, and that's all about culture. That's a good point. And yes, we've, you know, we've spoken offline about that, and I can completely understand that when you're dealing with these big bureaucratic organizations, all, which all of these are, right. um, unless it's really, really clear to them, it's so much easier and safer to say no. That's exactly right. You are listening to Media Unplugged with Tom Asacker and Mark Ramsey. How Amazon's new convenience store changes everything. I just thought this was fascinating, Tom. It's, it's, I, on the one hand, I think it's long overdue. On the other hand, I'm, I'm, I, it changes everything, and yet I wonder if it changes nothing. That's what we'll talk about here. <laughs> Checking out Amazon Go, the first no-checkout convenience store. Very clever, uh, fast company. Thank you for that. <laughs> The cashierless shop, which uses AI to ring up your purchases, could be a key part of Amazon's expanding vision of retail's future, and it opens Monday. Every part of the U.S. has a different uh, local term for convenience store. Uh, now Amazon wants to extend its brand to the notion of grab-and-go shop with Amazon Go, a store that literally lets you grab and go. On Monday, more than a year after they unveiled the concept, the first store opened in Seattle to welcome all shoppers. On arrival... You launch the Go app, which comes out today for iPhones and Android phones. It connects to your Amazon account. It displays a 2D code that you scan at one of the several glass security gates. The code identifies you to the store and opens the gate. <laughs> <laughs> and then you're in the store with no people. Uh, and then uh, how the store keeps track of you and your purchases isn't clear. There's no people in there. Uh, Amazon's back-end system is ostensibly now powerful enough to handle a store full of shoppers, which means... No one can block what you're doing. You know, they know what's going on. They've got cameras all over the place. And evidently it works. And I thought, well, that's really interesting. I'm not sure how that, you know, relates to the, <laughs> the, the idea that, you know, we want more people working and more jobs in the future. But that's, that's a separate point. Um, but what occurred to me as I read this was, isn't this something 7-Eleven should have been working on 10 years ago? Oh, yeah. See, this is the culture <laughs> thing again. Look... A few years ago, I was given a keynote speech at a conference for customer experience executives. So these are innovators mm -hmm. in their field. I showcased Amazon Go back then. Mm -hmm. because really? Oh, yeah, because they had a video. So that's all they had was a video. And I put the video up there, and I swear to you, I could feel their skepticism. <laughs> I could feel it. Now, I'm going to explain why they felt that way. In a minute, but I, I want to I tell you a couple of things about this because I, I can feel this and I know exactly what's going on because I've been there and I've seen this before. So anyway, I saw a tweet yesterday from someone that, <laughs> that read, I'm in Seattle and there's currently a line to shop at the grocery store whose entire mm -hmm. premise is that you won't have to wait in line. So I thought that mm -hmm. was pretty funny. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But look yep. at this. I'm going to tell you what's going on here because I love this. This is pure strategy. It's, it's wonderful to even think about. So the convenience store industry is you know, like a $550 billion industry. Half of it is just gasoline sales. 
So you got a mm -hmm. little over 200 some odd billion dollars, and it's primarily in food. And by the way, it's been moving towards fresh food, right? Coffee mm -hmm. and pizza and sandwiches. And these stores are everywhere, all over the United States. This seems like an opportunity to me for Amazon to do a few things, especially deepen their relationship with consumers. And that's their primary strategy, right? So mm -hmm. all of the insights you need are contained in the last paragraph of that Fast Company article, it, assuming you can read between the lines. So let me, let me read it to you, and then let me tell you what they're doing, because it's really, it's really clever. It says, so Amazon Go is actually a machine designed for throughput, but the mechanisms that make customers the cogs are hidden. The concept could allow the volume and margins to turn a profit that would be worth making, and it's a new way for Amazon to gather intensely valuable information about some of its core customers, embedding them even deeper into the all-encompassing Amazon ecosystem that's starting to fill every niche. So here's mm -hmm. what's going on. This is like, it's threefold. I'll give you this strategy. One, invest in technology in order to eliminate the marginal cost of the items itself. That's one, mm -hmm. and I'll explain that in a second. Two, deepen the relationship with customers, especially millennials, by getting them to per make purchases a habit, right? And, and accumulating and analyzing data so that they can personalize their experiences over time. And continue to introduce their own products to leverage production and distribution costs and increase margins. Okay, let me break that down real quick. So with Amazon Go, they're going after the urban millennial who doesn't have easy access to large grocery stores. This is like my mm -hmm. daughter when she was living in Boston. She couldn't get to a grocery store. She'd have to take the subway and then oh haul all of these bags home. She couldn't do it. So they already have those shoppers buying bulk items on Amazon instead of through warehouse clubs like Costco. So what right. these people do is ser Amazon searching out desire and then they fulfill it with their unique mm -hmm. strategy. Now that strategy, mm -hmm. that, what I talked about, the margins, and when I talked about marginal costs, I've been there. Let me explain it to you. My dad used to own a full service gas station. I worked mm -hmm. at there pumping gas. Every time someone pulled in to get gas, someone had to run out and pump the gas. And my dad had to pay those people. So the more customers mm -hmm. my dad attracted, the more attendance he had to hire and pay. All mm -hmm. of a sudden, across the street, a self-service gas station opens. So some big oil and gas company invested big time in that technology. But once they installed it, they could drop prices and steal all of my dad's customers because mm -hmm. they didn't have the additional marginal cost of the attendance, mm -hmm. right? So just like the customer experience professionals in the audience during that talk I gave where everybody got skeptical, my dad rolled his eyes. He didn't think it would work because he didn't want the damn thing to work. This is the game Amazon, <laughs> this is the game Amazon's playing. Like, you know, like these gas companies did, Amazon's going to start blanketing the marketplace with these stores. And eventually, mm -hmm. this is the next step, those stores will be selling Amazon products, mm -hmm. right? Fulfilled by Amazon fulfillment centers. Amazon branded products, Big you mean, or whatever. Why not? Yeah. Why not? Because there's the margin, right? They don't have to ship in products from anyone else. 
It's their products in their distribution centers. Just keep mm -hmm. replenishing the store. It's, this, it's, is the same, this is the same strategy employed by Netflix when they did licenses with all those studios, and now they used that leverage they created from that to launch their own Netflix originals. There you go. You see, that's exactly what's going on. It's like people don't see what they're doing, and they allow them to do it. That, mm -hmm. That's why these TV manufacturers, a lot of them are working with Roku to put in, you know, to put in the smart TV inside of their, mm -hmm. in their TVs. Why? Because they're scared to death of Google mm -hmm. and Facebook and all these other guys. They don't want them inside these TVs. As well they should be. Right. I've got one other point on Amazon, too, since your, 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 your story is really compelling, and it reminds me of one other thing that I left out of Laura's piece uh, on Amazon. Um, here was one of her Outlook summaries on Amazon specifically. She said, Amazon is clever and cunning, which is a great compliment coming from Laura. <laughs> Launching its own ad-supported over-the-top service and now she's being theoretical here. Launching its own ad-supported over-the-top service, ad-supported over-the-top service, and tying any 30-second TV ads, Tom, to subsequent purchases made on the Amazon website using Alexa hardware in the home, thus closing the loop between a TV commercial and actual purchase, which is the holy grail for, for advertisers. It would give Amazon two revenue streams from premium online video, um, plus drive upside for its core business. So they get ad revenue, they get subscription revenue, and they get to sell paper towels <laughs> all in a closed, and they make the paper towels. That's just what I'm saying. This is, <laughs> this is genius what they're up to here. And people better watch out when they get in bed with these guys because you know what happens. That's right. It is the world's, by the way, in case we forget, it is the world's largest bookstore. Yes, it is. It's all about books. Tom, it's time for rants and raves. What do you have? Well, this is a quick one because I know you're fighting a cold. And it, it is basically a rant on our culture's single-minded pursuit of success and financial gain. It's driving me absolutely crazy. <laughs> It has gotten so far out of whack that it has become almost comical. I mean, here's an example for you. I read that a dozen camels were recently disqualified from a Saudi beauty pageant for receiving Botox injections to make them more attractive. <laughs> camels. You heard me right. A veterinarian, a veterinarian was caught performing plastic surgery on the camels a few days before the pageant. In addition to the injections, his clinic was surgically reducing the size of the animal's ears to make them appear more delicate. Listen, people, <laughs> leave the friggin' animals alone. Please. Wow. Please. I mean, we are, as human beings, without a doubt, the most screwed up creatures on the planet. And that's why I start every one of my consulting engagements by sharing this Mark Twain quote. When we remember we are all mad, the mysteries disappear and life stands explained. <laughs> and he doesn't mean angry. No, he doesn't. He means the other kind of mad. Exactly. That's terrific. Wow, that's a good one. You got me beat there, I will tell you. <laughs> I, have, I have a couple. I don't think either one will take too long. The first one is kind of, um, I don't know. I just, you know, Tom, Kodak is a venerable old brand of 130-some-odd years, is it not? I know where you're going. So you saw the news this week. Yep. I have it from the BBC that they just they just 
Kodak stock soared on Kodak coin uh, in Bitcoin mining plans. Uh, they planned, they soared nearly 120%, which I think goes from about 30 cents to, you know, 45 <laughs> cents, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> After it revealed plans to mint its own cryptocurrency, the Kodak coin. <laughs> <laughs> now, <clears throat> Kodak, as you know, it pretty much is a licensing company. Pro Kodak is like the Trump organization. <laughs> it's a licensing company nowadays. So it just licenses his name, which against all odds and all logic is still perceived as valuable. It makes no sense to me, but, you know, there it is. So uh, it's teaming with London-based Wen Media Group to carry... By teaming, they mean we're, we're being paid by London-based uh, London Wen Media Group to carry out the initial coin offering, the ICO. Kodak is the latest in a series of companies to see, to see its value jump after revealing plans for blockchain-related activity. Quote, this is a phenomenon we saw back in the dot-com days of the late 1990s where traditional companies would mention some kind of internet strategy and their stock price would jump up, <laughs> commented Garrett Kellerman from the University of Cambridge. When you see stock prices moving like this, it does appear to be troubling. It's hard to say if there's a bubble, but it certainly is indicative of a frothy investment market. I don't know what that means. <laughs> so, And then they go on to, 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 to say, this is one of my favorite sentences, Kodak developed a digital camera in 1975, but decided not to commercialize the technology at the time, and its hesitation to leave behind its film heritage is thought by some to have contributed to it filing for bankruptcy protection years later in 2012. What do you think, Tom? Any connection there at all? Look, don't get me started on this. <laughs> <laughs> so, since that collapse, Kodak has licensed its brand to a variety of manufacturers with the mark appearing on batteries, printers, drones, tablet computers, and digital cameras. And in a memorable episode of, uh, of uh, The Apprentice, a laser printer and laser printer <laughs> equipment. I remember that full well. So, that's one. Um, there's more to that, but I'm, I'm, I, I'm disgusted by it. Uh, one other real quick one I have for you. This is uh, from research in um, The Drum. Nearly three-quarters of women over 50 shun all advertising. I thought, I've got to read this. <laughs> what the hell does so, that even mean? <laughs> I have to read this because this is research, you know, so it must be true. 72% oh. of women aged 53 to 72 dubbed baby boomers. Thanks for that insight. Don't pay attention to advertising, quote-unquote, according to a report examining the evolving relationship between women and marketing. There's not a word in this piece which is credible. Uh, Elastic Generation, the Female Edit, which apparently is the name of the report, believe it well, or not. How would you know if somebody so, paid attention to something? This is that, funny. Well, Keep going. <laughs> I'm, I just pay attention to me for a moment. All right. Sought the opinion of women aged 53 to 72 from the J. Walter Thompson. Do they still call it that, JWT? I think so. I don't London Innovation Group, which is a lot of words which are, are wasted on this report in an effort to pin down an accurate depiction of this key demographic. Okay, you're going to love this. Here it comes. It found that 91% of respondents wished advertisers would treat them as people and not as stereotypes. <laughs> with 90% agreeing with the statement, quote, I'm not going to start dressing in beige just because I'm over 50 now. <laughs> you know, I'll keep going. <laughs> in a similar vein, 71% stated that they were still a, quote, kid at heart. Oh, yeah? Well, 73% expressed displeasure at how their generation was patronized with regards to technology. Adding weight to these findings, <laughs> no, no pun intended, 
81% of women you know polled. We just said they lost did not, a whole demographic. I know, I know. <laughs> 81% of women polled say they did not recognize themselves in advertising supposedly targeted at their generation. Nor will they ever, Tom. That's the whole point of advertising. You're not supposed to recognize yourself. You're supposed to aspire to be that which you see on the big screen. <laughs> as such brands are encouraged to think beyond age as a number and get to the bottom of what really motivates their target audience while ensuring the depictions of older people in advertising are authentic. Somehow, all those things, none of those things align, by the way, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> Such findings are highly worrying for, worrying for marketers, given that 78% of over 50s command the purse strings in their households, <laughs> with the age group accounting for over half of all consumer spending in the UK. And then the last sentence is my favorite. JWT are seeking to, quote, redefine femininity, end quote, with female tribes consulting focused exclusively on women. So what'd you get out of that report, Tom? Well, first of all, if people are treating others like a stereotype, it's because the others are acting like a stereotype. <laughs> <laughs> I think that that's the thing that's lost on everybody. <laughs> you know? Like, to me, what... Why are they running ads like that? Huh? Did you hear me? <laughs> <laughs> I, I just, anytime there's a survey where people, where it's 90% <laughs> of people basically say, no, I'm not an idiot, but thank you for asking. <laughs> you have to question the results of this survey. Oh, that was, okay, that's Media, that that's media Unplugged for this week. Please remember to subscribe to us at <laughs> iTunes or on Stitcher. And while you're there, please rate the show. It helps other folks discover us, and some would consider that. Some say that's a good thing. <laughs> you can also catch us at Art19, Radio Inc., Media Village, which is called Media Village, by the way. It's right there on the yeah, paper. We lost them as a sponsor. We lost I know, the ARP as listeners. We, we've lost everything. I know. It's unbelievable. <laughs> and Google Play Music because of our great soundtrack. You can follow Tom on Twitter at Tom Asacker and Mark Ramsey Media. Send us your questions and comments using hashtag Media Unplugged. By the way, Tom, I heard from uh, one uh, listener that he liked the uh, British voice that introduces our show because it makes it sound that much more credible. Well, at least we got one listener. It's all downhill <laughs> from there. If there's a media topic you want us to cover, tweet us. Catch up on older episodes at our website, MediaUnplugged.net. Older, by older, I mean between 53 and 72, dubbed Baby Boomers. <laughs> Special thanks to the producer of Media Unplugged, Jeff Schmidt. Exciting audio for media. You can find him at jeff-schmidt.com. And for those of you still listening, and for Tom Asacker, I'm Mark Ramsey. Thank you for listening. <laughs>